So you've decided to self-publish your book. Congratulations, you're about to begin the exciting journey of independent publishing. Now, there are nine decisions you are going to need to make before you get started with actually publishing your book. And what you decide on these nine decisions are going to set the pace for some of them for the rest of your careers. You don't want to make the wrong decisions here. Now, if you're trying to decide whether or not to indie publish, this episode is going to be helpful for you. If you are indie publishing, for sure, this is an episode you can't miss. And if you are traditionally publishing, eh, you can listen if you want. <laughs> I'm Thomas Umstadt, CEO of Author Media, and this is Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And I want to get two perspectives on these decisions. And so I've brought Shatona Havig on the show. She's an indie author with over 80 books and is the host of the Because Fiction podcast. She knows the indie publishing process inside and out, and she'll let us know which pitfalls to avoid. Shatona Havig, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Well, thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to get to talk to you. So this is this is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Not and that I have are, an opinion or anything. <laughs> and these are decisions that a lot of people <laughs> wish they had been informed about, or often they end up Googling at the last minute. And uh, sometimes you can get to the right answer that way, but sometimes you get to the wrong answer that way. So let's start. I made all those mistakes. All those <laughs> mistakes. I did them all. I can. I, I, I volunteered as tribute, and they don't need to do it now. <laughs> so let's talk about the first one, which is book size. Now, this is one of those things you don't often think about, but books, especially paperbacks, come in commonly two different formats, six inches by nine inches and five and a half by 8.5. And you may be like, well, what does it really matter? It's like, well, it does matter. <laughs> the ideal length for a book is between 200 and 250 pages. And if you're too short, people don't feel like they got their money's worth. And if you're too long, you can end up losing money on your book because the costs go up faster than people expect to pay more. So people expect to pay more for a longer book. But when you're printing your book on demand, which is what you'll be doing as an indie author, the cost goes up faster than the price. So a 450-page book is twice the cost of a 200-page book, and yet you can't sell it for twice the price. And so one of the things I would recommend is that you, when you're picking the format, the bigger format is fewer pages and the smaller format is more pages. And you can decide which one gets you closer to that sweet spot of 200 pages, which is where you tend to make the most money and have the happiest readers who, quote, can't book down your book, unquote, because they can read it in one or two sittings. Now, there's a big warning here, and that is if you're writing a series, people are expecting you to keep the same size book for the rest of the series. And if you make this mistake, if your first book is eight and a half by five and a half and your next book is six by nine, you're going to get angry, unhappy readers or they won't show your book off on the shelf. <laughs> Both of those are bad. Right. <laughs> Wait, you know, there's something you have to, you have to, I got to throw it in here, but there's something else you have to consider in, in this process. And that is, what is the most important size to your reader? Because I actually have quite a few readers that don't like the six by nine, although that's what I started with because that's what I started with. I just went with it because I didn't know any better, you know? Yeah. But I, there are actually some readers that don't like six by nine. They really hate it. So you have to decide what's more important to you, selling more books at a lower cost or selling 
the books at the best size for your income. And there's there's that offset of do you want to make more per book or do you want to sell more books? It does make a difference. So I have to throw that in there. Yeah, I'm not sure how many readers care that much. You, you t- the ones that care will tell you, and you know maybe you know, have when you yes. get enough readers, <laughs> you'll find readers who care about every little thing. What I would say is, are you the kind of person who tends to write long, or are you the kind of person who tends to write short? I tend to write short. When it, for my book, I really had to work to get it to 200 pages because I was very focused in my writing. Whereas other people, they tend to be longer in their writing. And I was talking with one author, and for him, switching to six by nine kind of fixed the font size because otherwise he just had too many pages to, for the book to be profitable, and he had to switch to six six by nine because otherwise he had too many words. Now, maybe an edit would have helped get to fewer words and make the book better, but that's one of the things that is a bigger deal for indie authors than it is for traditional authors. And the reason for this is because of the printing technology. When you're printing offset, the cost doesn't go up as quickly as you add pages. It goes up, but it doesn't go up as dramatically. Whereas print on demand, every single page has to be printed one at a time effectively through the digital printer. It's a little bit oversimplified, but there's a reason why it's connected so closely with um, the printing, which leads us to actually the second decision, which is print on demand or offset printing. As an indie author, you could go with offset printing, the same technology that the traditional publishers use. And you could print 5,000 copies of your book and get them for a dollar or two, maybe two and a half dollars a copy, depending on which printer you go with. And you compare that to what you pay for a print-on-demand book, which is three or four dollars a copy, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's half the price. But it's not half the price. (laughs) You're not comparing apples to apples. There are a lot of hidden costs with offset printing. Warehousing distribution, fulfillment, and not to mention upfront cost. So the upfront cost of print on demand is effectively zero. There are little costs here and there, but it's not very much money. Whereas to print 5,000 books at $3 a book is $15,000 that you have to pay upfront. And if you can't sell enough books, you may never get that money back. And space. I have a friend who did this. She she bought, I don't remember, it was like 2,500 or 3,000 copies of her book and she and she's a speaker it's a it's a book that is it's going to be easy to sell so she did it this way because i mean she was actually with a subsidy publisher and you know this was one of the methods that she could choose and she chose it but you don't realize how many boxes of books 2500 3000 copies of a book is and it was a 6 by 9 it was a tomb and it was a it's a great book i highly recommend it but it you've you've got to have a place to put all these. So you've got to pay for warehousing and or you've got to have a really big garage. I'm just saying. I know an author who did a Kickstarter campaign for her book. She raised twenty twenty five thousand dollars for her book and pre sold a bunch of copies. And she was able to offset print with the money from the Kickstarter campaign. And I will say, if you're going to do offset printing. Do a Kickstarter campaign first to see if there's even demand for it. Because if you have a whole garage full of books and you end up selling them all, you end up winning, right? That's a win in the long run. Uh, Now, there's a cost in terms of time for shipping them, so maybe it's not a win. But let's say you're paying for warehousing, (laughs) you're you're working with a distributor, and somebody else is shipping them for you. That's a win. But probably 99 times out of 100 or even less or even more common than that, the author is unable to sell all of the books. They overestimate the demand for the books, and they end up with 
hundreds or thousands of books they can't sell that are like an anchor. Every time they move, these books have to get moved and it's tied up a lot of capital. <laughs> so my recommendation here, if it's your first time, is to go with print on demand. You can always offset later if you find out that your book is a huge hit. You can always offset later. But print-on-demand is dramatically simpler because the print-on-demand machines are in the fulfillment centers, which means you don't have to worry about warehousing. You don't have to worry about fulfillment. You don't have to worry about shipping. All of those complexities are taken care of by the print-on-demand companies. Which leads us to decision number three. So when we talk about print-on-demand companies, there's really only two. There are these two and then others that resell these two. And so don't pay more for somebody who's just going to sell you one of these two. Pay for one of these two directly. And those two are KDP Print, Amazon KDP Print, and Ingram Spark. These are what maybe 90% of indie authors use, uh, maybe more. And it's because they have the best prices. Because yeah. if somebody's reselling Ingram Spark, they're adding the money because <laughs> on top because there's no discount for being a, a reseller, at least none that I'm aware of. So let me give you the pros of both of these. Actually, Shatona, what are your thoughts on KDP Print versus Ingram Spark? Okay, well, for me, I, I obviously I have accounts at both. I have done both, but I tend to be pretty exclusive to KDP because Ingram Spark is a more expensive. So I always I always say start there. Just just start with KDP because you've got setting fees. Okay. You get your book done. Everything is perfect. You upload it and then someone somewhere finds a missing quotation mark. With KDP, you upload a new file with that quotation mark and boom. It's done. We're, it, all is well. Within hours, the book is going to print properly. With Ingram Spark, it's a $25 to $50 fee to change that quotation mark. Now, you can change a whole bunch of other stuff at the same time on the interior if you want. You can change the entire interior. But if you need to change that quotation mark, they're going to charge you. There's a charge for a lot of little things. If you need to make cover change, it's, it's a charge. And so, really, start, start easy. Start easy because... You you need to know what you're doing before you start dealing with Ingram Spark and and all the fees because all the fees. I will say if you're a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors, some of those fees get waived um, that Ingram Spark yes. uh, charges. I don't know if they waive all of the fees, but um, so let me real quick go through the pros of both. Uh, the pros of KDP is that it's easier. You can have an all-in-one dashboard for both your print and your eBooks, all connected to your Amazon account or the Amazon account that you're using to print. And it also makes it easier to advertise your book. Sometimes if you're not, if your paperback book isn't through KDP print, Amazon won't let you use their paperback marketing platform. I've gotten reports of authors who are Ingram Spark exclusive, um, unable to do advertising for anything but their ebook. Uh, the pros of Ingram Spark, though, are that there's a lot of indie bookstores that hate Amazon with such a burning passion that they will not stock any book published by Amazon under any circumstances or even printed by Amazon or shipped from an Amazon warehouse. <laughs> they will do nothing with Amazon because from an indie bookstore's perspective, Amazon is the Borg and they are the humans trying to resist assimilation. Um, another advantage <laughs> of Ingram Spark is that uh, they're a little bit more flexible when it comes to strangely shaped books. That they seem to have more options when it comes to paper and size. And I know some people who've had uh, better results with different kinds of children's books or other specialty books with Ingram Spark. But if you're just doing um, fiction, you know, which is you know pretty standard, uh, you don't need any of those benefits. 
If you want a mass market paperback, you know, the ones that you see in the grocery store, you know, that funky little size, you really have to go with Income Spark. You actually can't get that through KDP. Yeah. Now, I will say it is possible to do both. And this is an advanced technique that some authors do where they use KDP for, for all sales through Amazon and they use Ingram Spark for all sales through independent bookstores. Here's my recommendation. Don't do both if it's your first book. <laughs> Keep it simple. Make it easy on yourself and stay exclusive to KDP Print. You're not locked in forever. You can change your mind down the road. But there's so much complexity with indie publishing that if this is your first time through the gauntlet, don't do Ingram Spark. Ingram Spark is kind of the more advanced tool to use. I'll see that and raise you three books. Get three books on your about first, just because there's so many things you learn with each one that until you've hit most of those little snags that may not happen on that first or second one, until you've hit them, it, there's Ingram can be a little overwhelming. So I'm, I'm going to say go for three, but that's just my, you know, not so humble opinion. So do your first trilogy with KDP print and then branch out. Yeah. All right. Our next decision is the big decision. This decision is so big. I have an entire episode just on this decision. So this is KDP Select (laughs) or why? Now, KDP, we've been throwing around that acronym. That's Kindle Direct Publishing. We talked about KDP Print, which is Kindle Direct Publishing Print, which is a little bit of a confusing name. I like their old name better, which was CreateSpace, but... Whatever, they have a more uh, harmonized branding now. This is Amazon's ebook printing. And you have two options when you print uh, your ebook or when you sell your ebook. And that is to be exclusive to Amazon, where you get a 70% royalty, or to be non exclusive to Amazon, where Amazon gives you a 35% royalty. Actually, that's slightly incorrect. The 35% comes in if your book is priced under $299. If your book is priced two ninety nine or up, it doesn't matter if you're white or not. You can get that seventy percent. Are you sure about that? Yep. Yeah, no. People would have jumped on me if I had gotten that wrong. Amazon is the eight hundred pound gorilla, and it knows it, so it wants to push authors to be in their KDP Select program, which is where you agree to be exclusive to Amazon, and in reward for being exclusive to Amazon, they give you some really cool marketing uh, tools. They allow you to make your book free from time to time. They allow you to do special countdown deals and perhaps most popular with novelists. They allow you to be in Kindle Unlimited, Amazon's Netflix of eBooks, where people can read your book for quote free, unquote, and you get a piece of their $10 a month subscription. And so the question is, do you go exclusive to Amazon where you get these marketing tools or do you go quote wide? unquote, where you're able to sell through iBooks and Kobo and the rest of it. So, Shatona, what are your thoughts? Which is the better approach? I would say, again, kind of like with the first one, I would definitely recommend they do one quarter at least. It, um, KDP Select it goes by quarters. You you agree to exclusivity for three months at a time, but I, or I think it's 90 days, but same smell. But I would do that just so you see what it has and because it's easy. But also because it's a great way to get discovered in that Kindle Unlimited program. It, it's it's how a lot of people have found me. They have Kindle Unlimited. They go look for Christian fiction and boom, there is this woman with all these books. Maybe I should try one. And it doesn't cost them anything extra 
to try them. It's not free, but it, we say, quote, free because it's not an extra cost that they have to do. And so they get a chance to kind of discover new readers. And I got to throw something in here because I can't tell you how many people think that authors do not get paid for the books that people read in Kindle Unlimited. So many people want to sign up for it, but they think it's terrible that Amazon doesn't pay authors for Kindle Unlimited reads. And that is so not true. I actually have an entire video about it on YouTube because these poor people are trying to be thoughtful to authors and it's actually not a thing. We get paid. We get paid for every single page you read. So read all the pages. But... Oh, and what's what's different is that you're paid per page read. So somebody checks out your right. book from the lending library, puts it on their Kindle, and then returns it, you get no money. Whereas if they buy your book and then don't read it, you get paid for the whole book. And so KDP Select tends to reward authors who write books that people finish, <laughs> whereas selling standalone books are better for people who write books that are not finished. And if you're wanting to learn more about these strategies, I have two episodes from kind of champions of both approaches. One is episode 140 uh, with Joanna Penn, how to develop multiple streams of money for your writing career. Joanna Penn is a big advocate of going wide, not just in terms of different platforms, but also in terms of different countries. And she has, I think, over 100 different sources of money, which makes her cancel proof. <laughs> There's, you know, Even if you were to cancel 50 income streams for Joanna Penn, she'd still have 50 more you haven't touched. The other side is the KDP Select brings you more money overall argument. And that's presented by Lacey Williams in an episode, What Indie Authors Need to Know About Kindle Unlimited with Lacey Williamson. So that's episode 230. I encourage you to listen to both of those. But bottom line, my recommendation is if it's your first book, go with KDP Select. Stay exclusive to Amazon. You're going to need those marketing tools. You can go wide later, but make things easy on yourself because signing up for all of the other bookstores is a hassle. And it may not. In fact, it un, it's unlikely to bring you enough sales to justify that hassle. That's why I actually went. I was wide for a very long time. And we started seeing the wide sales trickling off enough that we decided I'm actually losing money. So I did a survey of my readers and I found that 93% of my readers at that time anyway, use Kindle in some form, an app, the actual Kindle on their PC, whatever, they use it in some form. And so at that point, it was crazy for me personally not to be in there. So you kind of have to know your audience and you can only know your audience once you have one. So you, <laughs> so you kind of have to get started somewhere. So I totally agree with you on that. And this is where an email list is really handy because that's how you surveyed them, right? You created a survey and you emailed them all a link to the survey and said, please let me know, uh, which connects with things we've talked about in other episodes. So uh, that leads us to decision number five, to audiobook or not to audiobook. If you listen to this show much, you know I am a big fan of audiobooks. In 2021, one of the ways your book may look self-published to somebody who otherwise wouldn't know whether you're self-published or traditionally published is the presence of an audiobook. The traditional publishers have more or less now drunk the Kool-Aid and all their new books have audiobook versions, but a lot of indie authors are not publishing audiobook versions. So let me give the pros and cons from my perspective. We'll hear what Shatona has to think, because I suspect we may disagree, and then we'll give you the bottom line. So pros of having an audiobook, you're going to reach more people. You're going to reach audiobook exclusive people like me. I'm uh, not visually impaired, but you wouldn't know it based off of my reading habits. <laughs> my reading habits are, uh, I <laughs> basically exclusively read audiobooks. I'll occasionally buy 
a paper book and skim it, especially if I'm thinking about having somebody on as a guest of the show. But in general, audiobook exclusive. With the exception of the other exception of children's books. I read a lot of children's books. Uh, you also tend to reach more influential people. Or you're able to reach more influential people. There's a lot of CEOs and other influencers that only listen to audiobooks. They don't um, read. There's also, um, it, it depends on your audience. So audiobook listeners tend to be more men than women. Although that's changing, and I'm not sure that that's going to be true five years from now because of how many women are adopting audiobooks. And then uh, another issue is that an audiobook is an indication that you're financially committed to your book. <laughs> and it's also an indication that your publisher is committed to your book. If your publisher doesn't believe in your book, they may not have an audiobook version, which is a big red flag. I know this is not the trad pub versus indie pub episode, but if you're with a traditional publisher and they're like, oh, sorry, we're too broke to afford to make you an audiobook, they're too broke to publish your book, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so here are the, some of the cons. If you publish your audiobook for free, which you can do, how that works is your royalty is split with the narrator. And if you do that, you may make less on the audiobook sale than you make on the paperbook sale. It also requires you to pick a narrator, which I found for uh, authors. This is really difficult. Like picking someone to be the voice of their book is sometimes so stressful that they would rather not have an audiobook than pick from the auditions of the different narrators who are competing to read their book. So just realize that if that's, <laughs> I don't know why that is, but I've noticed people get stuck there. And then uh, the other con is that it, if, if you don't split it with the narrator, it can be expensive in terms of time and money uh, to do it yourself. And more expensive in terms of time, uh, but potentially also some cost to get the gear if you're going to record it yourself. So, Shatona, what are your thoughts? Um, actually, I, believe it or not, I agree. And, and then some with you. Um, I have become a crazy audio fan. I actually became an audio fan listening to that Guernsey book because it is so brilliantly narrated. I swear the narration's even better than the story. It is just, it's a good story, but it, it was just brilliant. And so I started listening. To, I think I've listened to 120 books last year on audio. <laughs> it was yeah, a little excessive, but you know, I, I, I go walking. Have you discovered Sherp? I have discovered Chirp. I have discovered all kinds of stuff. But le so in 2013, I hired two narrators and I went, I paid out up front for them there. It is not cheap. It's very expensive to pay outright for the books. And actually they have just barely earned out what I paid, but I wasn't doing it. And, th and I think this is an important aside. Sometimes it has to be a, a really long game for you. You can't expect an instant ROI. It's kind of like um, you and I totally disagree on book tours because you have a you have a different ROI for them than I do. Well, it's the same kind of thing with audiobooks for me. I I'm doing a long game on these. I don't expect to make a lot of money up front, but that's okay because you need because one of the ways that it works, you need a big backlist. Okay, it. it uh, Audio readers are even bigger binge readers than book readers. We we don't we want to just start the next book. We need that next one right away. With a physical book, you're okay to go to the next book and read something else and come back when the next one comes out and you're good. But there's something about audio. It doesn't work the same way. And so I went ahead and paid it. And I got two of them recorded by one gal and I, I then they faltered. I it's like, where are you? Where's the next one? They didn't come. So picking an I can see that that would be scary for picking a narrator because you're like, you want them for all of the books. You don't want to have someone else 
have to come in in the middle of a series because I've got a six book series and I've got two by one person. And I'm like, (laughs) I need the rest of the books, but she can't now. So last year, after all these years of just having those three little books sitting out there, I hired an amazing narrator. This woman is phenomenal. And I started with a series that we have coming out. So these books are coming out with each release as they are supposed to. And we did a different kind of royalty thing than, than... is different. I created my own royalty share kind of thing where I pay for half of the book up front and and then we split and it, it works really, really well. It makes it we both have skin in the game. But because of that, we're getting these books out faster and I'm noticing sales much, much faster. But I did the opposite of what I think you're going to recommend people do with this. <laughs> Yeah, so if this is your first book, I don't recommend that you spend $5,000 to hire a narrator. That's kind of a, an advanced uh, technique. If you have the money, it's okay. But what I would recommend if it's your first time is to do the rev share through ACX, which is Amazon's audiobook production company. I realize I'm recommending a lot of Amazon here in this first episode, but I'm, the main reason I'm doing that is that it's the easiest path to get your first book through the the pipe through the gauntlet so to speak and as you get more experience and as you get more training and as you get more money uh, there are other options that may be better for an advanced author but um, having an audiobook is much better than not having an audiobook for your first book and for a lot of first-time authors that's the choice it's they're not in shatona's luxurious spot of like i have money from my previous book sales that i can spend to get a narrator and pay them up front and have a bigger chunk of the royalties because the other advantage of having an audiobook, um, those influential people that are more likely to read it are more influential, which means it leads to sales of the ebook right. and the paper book that you wouldn't have received if you didn't have that audiobook option. There is one thing to note with with doing it this way, though. ACF, especially right now with all that has gone on in the last year, narrators are A, getting more and more expensive, and B, are less, the good ones are less and less willing to do the royalty share. So getting a good person who's willing to do that royalty share is not easy. So it's it, there's like this toss up there that uh, people need to know that this is a problem. And actually, I started with ACX and it was a good experience. Don't get me wrong. But I actually found that I prefer working with Findaway. They have royalty share options as well. But um, your book gets out there so much faster. It ends up on Scribed. It ends up on all of the platforms, including Audible. It just takes Audible forever to do anything. You just smile and grin and say, come on, you can do it. You can do it. That's true if you go with ACX, too. Audible is is very backlogged regardless. And um, I really like Findaway Voices, I will say. Yeah. I like that it ends up in libraries. And you're on Chirp. So I was asking Shatona if she's discovered Chirp. Chirp is a way where you can, it's like BookBub for audiobooks. And it's not like BookBub for audiobooks. It is BookBub for audiobooks because it's run by BookBub. But if you're on ACX, you can't go with Chirp. So Find a Way is another really good option. I have a whole episode where we explore those two with each other. But ACX is simpler. So if we're going with the simplest approach, you have just the one login if you go with ACX. But again, these are pros and cons, and there are cons for sure of going with ACX. Um, you do get a bigger royalty, though, with Audible if you go with ACX, uh, as opposed to Find Away Voices. Yeah. All right, so that brings us to decision number seven. Do your own typesetting or hire somebody else to do it. So you can't just publish a Word document as your ebook, or at least you shouldn't. <laughs> Some people do, 
and it makes them look really bad. You have to convert your Word document into a typeset PDF for printing on paper, and you need to have it converted into a typeset EPUB for eBooks. How do you do that? Well, you can hire somebody or you can do it yourself with Vellum. So let me talk about Vellum because this is very popular and it wasn't around when I was a kid. This is a, I want to say it's new on the block, but it's been around for years now. But back in the day, we had Calibre and it was awful. <laughs> so um, some people still use Calibre and I feel bad for you. Uh, so if you plan a lot, write a lot of eBooks. Uh, I recommend that you get the Mac software Vellum. And with just a few clicks, it can turn a well-formatted Word document into a beautiful PDF and EPUB. And if your Word document is not well-formatted, you can fix it really easy with Vellum. Now, Vellum costs $249. It's one-time purchase, though. So if you're planning to have a career of writing books, that cost of Vellum on a per-book basis drops really fast. And really, it only takes two books for it to be cheaper than hiring somebody. And one perk, I would say, of Vellum is that it forces you to get a Mac, which are now cheaper and faster <laughs> than PCs. The new no, M1, the new M1 chips, uh, you can, for $6.99, get a uh, Mac Mini that's twice the speed or of a PC, twice its price, because they're not using those slow, expensive Intel chips. They're using the new, cheaper, faster M1 chips, which I'm a big fan of. Now, you can also rent a virtual machine for a dollar an hour. Shadona, I know you're a big fan of this. So what is the process of renting a Mac to use Vellum? It's really, you've got your Vellum. You you actually have to open, you go to the Mac and Cloud, and you actually open it in this virtual computer. It's like you've got a virtual laptop in the cloud. You open it, and you use it, and you pay a dollar an hour, and you can you can, once you've done it once or twice, you can format a book in less than an hour. It, in vellum it, it is really fast but for a dollar for me not to have to have two laptops because i'm not going to live and and for me to save my marriage um <laughs> my husband is very anti-apple so you know i'm just like mm, it's not worth it to me but it, it is actually really as easy as it sounds you can do this you know you just you, it's like you're using like someone's got a screen share on their computer but you take over it gets kind of like that. I don't know how else to explain it. But even still, I strongly recommend that people learn how to format their book properly in Word, even before they get to that stage. Because if you can learn to type without doing all the wrong things, it saves so much hassle. So I'm just, I got, I, I'm a big proponent of that. Get the Smashwords guide and just follow it. I'm just saying. Smashwords has a guide on how to appropriately use Microsoft Word. If you've never had a class in Microsoft Word, if you're still highlighting text and changing the font size, um, you're doing it wrong, and you may not know that. There's a much faster, easier way. It takes about 30 minutes to learn, and it will dramatically reduce the amount of time you spend working with a Word document and increase the beauty of your Word document, not just as, while it's in Word, but all along the pipeline. So now we should mention uh, Dave Chesson uh, with Kindlepreneur has got Atticus coming out soon as of this recording those of you listening in the future Atticus will be out Atticus right now is uh, vaporware because it's supposed to be out already and it's not but uh, it promises to do what Vellum does but for the PC and it also promises to do what Scrivener does uh, but for the PC but also for the Mac so it's it's both of those combined it looks like it's going to be a really cool piece of software people are very excited about it but as of right now they're excited on the sales pitch. They haven't actually tried it. So we'll once Atticus comes out, I'll probably get Dave Chesson on the show and I'll, I'll interrogate him. But until then, uh, just have it as an option and keep it in your view. 
Now, I just, I'm unwilling to put everything on hold for a maybe. I got stuff to do. So if you have stuff to do, it might just be worth it to do Mac and Cloud if you're a PC diehard like some of us. I'm just throwing that out there. It allows you to have a Mac and basically in a browser window. Uh, So the second option is to hire somebody else to do it. And this is one of those things where you get the benefit of Vellum even if you're not using Vellum. It used to be when you hired somebody to typeset your book, you had to get somebody who knew how to use InDesign. And they would create this big, expensive InDesign file. And then you wound up with an InDesign file. You don't need to do that unless you're writing a really complicated textbook with lots of complicated formatting. You want to get a Vellum file. (laughs) And because Vellum is so easy to use, freelancers are charging far less than they used to. Used to be typesetting cost $500 or more when people were doing it in InDesign. Now that they're doing it in Vellum, they may only charge you 100 bucks to typeset your file, sometimes even less, right? Especially if you've I, I formatted your Word document 50. cleanly, they're going to just click, click, click. And they're going to spend their five minutes. They're going to send you back beautiful files. They'll charge you $50. You're both really happy. Yep. I got a gal that does it, and she's amazing, and that's why. So now, warning, warning, make sure you get the vellum file from your freelancer. When you're hiring a freelancer to do it, make sure that you get the source file and not just the PDF or the EPUB. So an example of this, I was talking with an author just the day before yesterday, and they were talking about how a friend of theirs wrote a book with a typo, just one typo, but it turned a word into a bad word. And the word as a bad word in the sentence turned the sentence into a dirty joke, which otherwise would not be a problem. But this was a Christian book with a dirty joke. And the author could not quickly or easily fix it because the author did not have access to the vellum file and the freelancer wasn't getting back to the author. And so now they've got this (laughs) very, very embarrassing typo that they can't fix. And this is one of the reasons why it's nice to be able to do the typesetting yourself so that if there is an issue, you can just click, click, fix it in Vellum, upload it to KDP, which doesn't charge you. Uh, you get to upload it both to the ebook and to the paper. Problem solved. You move on with your life. Whereas if you're hiring a freelancer, this could become a big project. Yeah, I I still say make sure you know how to format. Not, I'm not talking about all the little nuances, but know how to use Word in a, so that you're not hitting hard returns to create space, so that you're not... There's just, oh, there's so many things that I see that come through. You know, we we may need to do a word formatting episode. (laughs) Because in my experience, just do it, just learn it. (laughs) Yeah, in my experience, the people who don't know Word don't know that they don't know Word. And in fact, I was working with a very successful author just a couple of weeks ago who had no idea (laughs) he didn't know how to use Microsoft Word. So if you're hitting enter more than twice, you haven't learned the superpower of Word. And if you are. Um, changing the font size by clicking a little drop-down arrow and changing the font size of something, you haven't learned. And what it's called is headings and styles. And once you learn headings and styles, magical things happen. But this is not the Learn Microsoft Word episode. This is the uh, (laughs) Indie Publishing Decisions episode. So bottom line, when it comes to typesetting, I recommend that you do it yourself. And I recommend that you buy a Mac, even if it's a Mac Mini. This should last you about 10 years. For six ninety nine, that's about seventy dollars a year, or twenty cents a day, or point zero zero eight cents an hour. That's <laughs> so a good deal. And and it's a write off. I'll, I'll throw that in there. <laughs> that's right. It's uh, if you're using this for work, assuming that the IRS sees you as a business, and I have a whole episode and a whole course on that. Uh, but assuming that you're a professional author, buying a computer for work is a very tax deductible. Okay, so that brings us to the next decision you have to make as an indie author, is whether or not to publish your book in hardback. 
Amazon is rolling out a cool new program which allows indie authors to indie publish hardback books on demand. This is very cool and did not exist. In fact, it still doesn't really exist for a lot of indie authors. But for those of you listening to this in the future, it might exist when you first sign up. More and more authors are being added to this program as Amazon slowly ramps it up. And I don't see a lot of downsides to offering a hardback option. Uh, having a $25 hardback makes your paperback look cheaper, and it makes your ebook look cheaper, and some people are going to want to buy that $25 hardback. It's kind of like the $100 bottle of wine at the end of the wine aisle at the grocery store. The, the grocery store is not expecting to sell that $100 bottle of wine. That $100 bottle of wine is there to make the $30 bottle of wines look cheaper. <laughs> so the same thing happens to you. Now, the other option is to offset print hardbacks. And I don't recommend this, again, unless you're doing a Kickstarter and you're doing a limited edition, in which case it can be incredible. You know, if you're selling those limited editions for $100 copy and they're signed and numbered, or maybe $500 a copy if you're Brandon Sanderson, you can make a lot of money doing that. But in general, (laughs) I don't recommend offset, especially for your first book. But I don't see any downsides to offering hardback as an option. Shadona, what are your thoughts? Oh, I agree. But if you think about it, um, Amanda Taro last year did, she had a big release. She went through the book launch blueprint, followed all the advice, and she did, I'm pretty sure she did hers as offset and ordered X number of hardbacks. And it's not a big book. It's, I'm going to say it's under 200 pages, this, this hardback. But I mean, we bought it because we were so excited about her and her story and her book. And I knew nothing about her. I'd never read a book by her before. But I bought it because I was excited and it was a beautiful book and it's a thing. So there are there are times to do it if you're if you're kicking off something big and have that limited run, even if you don't even if you don't do a, a Kickstarter, she sold her books. I don't think she has any left. She didn't buy, I think she bought like fifty. I mean, she didn't buy that many. But we all jumped on the wagon because this is fun and this is exciting and you're going to have those super fans who want, I mean, I'm, if it comes in hardback, I want hardback. It's a thing. So I'm, I'm going to buy hardback if it's available and if I like the book at all. But hers, I got into the excitement. I got caught up in the moment and I bought the book before I'd ever read a word that she'd ever written. So it can, you can do that even without it. I just wouldn't recommend doing it with every book. Or you know, be really careful, make it really limited. So the fact that there's only 50 copies and they're signed and numbered, so you, this is copy three of 50, uh, makes it really special. And it allows it to demand that higher price. And if she becomes a famous author, those will be incredible investments to have a signed and numbered yeah. copy of the book. So the next decision you need to make as an indie author is to offer a pre-order or not to offer a pre-order. And this is one of those decisions where there are schools of thought. And I'm not going to say warring camps, but occasionally people throw shade at the other side (laughs) of the camp. And so I have a whole episode, again, on this specific question. It's episode 149, How to Set Up Pre-Orders for Your Indie Book, where we talk about the pros and cons of this strategy. But here's here's a quick summary. The more pre-orders you get, uh, the more Amazon's algorithm will like your book. And the more of copies of your book, Amazon will keep on the shelves, so to speak. Now, your print on demand, so it's not really on the shelf, but it does affect how quickly they can fulfill the book when people order it. And so having the algorithm likes you, that's a good thing, right? So why not have all your books on a pre-order? Well, Amazon doesn't count your book sales against its bestseller list 
on the day your book comes out. It counts all those pre-orders the day the sale is made to the person pre-ordering the book. So if you have 365 people each buying your book one day a year doing a one-year pre-order, your book will show as having one sale a day in terms of the bestseller list. Whereas if you can get all of those people to buy your book on day one, you're going to be much higher on the list because you'll have 365 sales all in one day. So some people, they really are going with an algorithm strategy, whereas other people really want that bestseller badge. There are pros and cons of both strategies. So Shatona, I'm curious what you do for your books. Yeah, I actually do both. Um, there There are books that people have had to wait longer for and when they've had to wait longer for that book, a lot of times I will do a pre-order because it, it does get it stirred up and people get really, really excited and they're like ready to, they'll, they'll, they'll spread the word even more if there is a pre-order. I tend not to do more than six weeks, but sometimes, <laughs> and this is, not, this is not good strategy, I'm just going to throw this out there, but I'm going to tell you because there are people like me, sometimes I put a book up on pre-order to make sure that I hit my own deadline. Um, because if you don't meet the pre-order deadline, you go into Amazon jail. So for a year, I want to. Okay, you know they're a little better now. They actually give you one change of date and everything now that they didn't used to do. But I don't let myself think about that. I remember that I can't do a pre-order for a year, and I might need to. So because of that, you know, I will use it as a deadline thing. But most books that I put out, I don't do a pre-order because I do want that launch day buzz because it builds and it, it's it's kind of a thing but when I do pre-order one of the one of the things that really works well to get people to pre-order I drop the price at least a dollar for during pre-order so instead of all my books are like 5.99 you know for the first year but so I'll do a 4.99 pre-order and I'll do it through launch day and I do it through launch day because there are some people that only buy with an Amazon gift card and you can't pre-order a book with a gift card. And I'm not going to penalize someone for not using their credit card. So <laughs> I go through that day. But other than that, it it usually, I just release it. I let people know it's coming and then boom, it hits it. Amazon, you've got your account and you get people to follow you on Amazon and they get an email saying, hey, it's available and they all go buy it. And usually that's how I do it. But some things, especially things people have been waiting for, it, it builds that anticipation and that momentum and so for that yeah i'll i'll do a pre-order but i'm kind of a a, all over the place i go wide on the pre-order thing (laughs) so bottom line my recommendation is if this is your first book do a four-week pre-order if for no other reason than to make sure you have plenty of time to get your amazon page just right and you don't have to tell everyone about those first few weeks of your pre-order but it's good to have some time to ramp it up and I wouldn't put your book up for pre-order until it's 100% finished. Don't risk going to Amazon jail um, for a pre-order. All right. The ninth decision you'll need to make once you've decided to become an indie author is what kind of company will I form? Now, I should say I'm not a lawyer or a CPA and neither is Shatona. So this is not meant to be legal or tax advice. This is general education. This is not a replacement of talking to your own CPA or your own lawyer. That said, I did take business law in college and I have started a few business entities on my own. So I do have some general advice to give you. And the first is that you need to realize that every indie author starts a business. 
Some do it on purpose, and some do it without realizing it. You don't become an employee of Amazon uh, when they pay you royalties. You don't get paid vacation. You don't get stock options. Uh, you don't get a <laughs> Christmas gift or holiday gift from Jeff Bezos in the mail. Uh, you don't get a W-2. No, you get a tax bill. <laughs> you get a 1099, <laughs> and you get to determine what is on that 1099, how Amazon pays you. But Amazon pays you the way an, a one company pays another company. So if you do nothing and you just put in your social security number, you are effectively forming what's known as a sole proprietorship. This is a default if you don't do anything. Uh, the advantages of being a sole proprietor is that it's cheap and easy. It just happens. You don't have to file anything. You don't have to ask for permission. In the United States, if you say you're a business, you're a business, which is great. The downside, though, is that you have no liability protection. If you get into a car accident, someone could sue you and take away ownership of your book. If you're driving to a book signing, they could take away ownership of your book, and now you no longer own your own book. Or maybe somebody sues you for libel in your book, and then they take away your car. <laughs> so it can go both ways. So liability risk is arguably, and again, I'm not a lawyer. Lawyers like to really scare you about liability. But for, if you're writing fiction, I'd say liability is not a huge risk, um, but it's still a risk. It doesn't go away just because it says fiction on the on the cover. And the, the, I would say the liability risk is higher if you're writing nonfiction. Somebody feels like you portrayed them in a libelous way. There's some liability there. There are other potential liabilities that you're uh, subject to. And in order to protect uh, oneself from liability, the most common way to do it as a author is to form an LLC. Now, some authors form the LLC just to look like a professional company that's publishing their book. And they don't care about the liability protection. They just want to say, my book is published by Stonecastle Press, uh, LLC, which is their LLC that they formed. Um, but there, uh, an LLC allows you to keep the assets for the book business that you formed separate from all of your other assets. And also your expenses and your income keeps it nice, one little separate legal box. And if you have, say, over 80 books like Shatona has, that's over 80 copyrights. And so, uh, Shatona, I don't know if you've been thinking about your estate, but when you die, your copyrights will last for another 75 years. The clock doesn't start ticking until you die, which means you have descendants who are not yet born who may be managing the intellectual property of your books. And if you put that intellectual Crazy, huh? property into a company, it potentially can make it easier to pass it along to people who will steward it well. Can I throw something in here, Thomas? Um, if you have the LLC, there's also the advantage of being able to have an Amazon account separate from your personal purchasing account. And I wish I had known this when I started. I tell everybody, find out how to do this because I didn't do it, so I don't know how. But find out how to get that Amazon account that isn't linked. All of my books are on the same Amazon account that all of the, my purchases are on. And it's horrible. And I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to separate them. So just saying, if you start, if you're just starting, start right and do what you got to do to get those things separated. So I do recommend doing that. You don't have to have to form a separate business. All you have to do is create a new Amazon account. And all that needs is a separate email address. So you just I thought click. you weren't allowed to have two. Um, yeah, you can have two. And and one is oh. for your business, one is for your individual. So I don't think Amazon's going to give you a hard time, even if your business is your sole proprietorship. I don't, because uh, it's not like you're giving Amazon your social security number. So how would they know? Uh, 
How would they know? How would they know? Yeah, but, <laughs> but but if you did it wrong, like me, it's a nightmare. I'm just saying. I keep trying to talk to them, and they keep, uh, yeah, they don't understand what I'm saying because they're all in another country, and yeah. But in, <sighs> and we'll get to that in a second. There's also potentially some tax advantages to having an LLC. Uh, this gets really complicated really quickly because everyone's taxing situation is different. But an LLC can be taxed like a sole proprietorship. can also be taxed like an S-Corp or a C-Corp. You kind of get to pick how you want to be taxed. You get to pick which chapter of the tax code you want to apply to your business. And that's really nice. And if you want to learn more about taxing and its implications for authors, I have a whole course on it, the Tax and Business Guide for Authors that I made along with Tom Umstadt, CPA. While I am not a CPA, Tom Umstadt, CPA, is a CPA and he's been working with authors for <laughs> over 35 years going on 40 years actually pretty close to 40 years uh, he's been doing it for a long time uh, the third option is to create a general partnership and uh, my business law professor told us a whole day's worth of horror stories about how terrible general partnerships are and you're like well I'm not going to do that well you might by accident if you're co-authoring your book and you haven't had a contract that defines your relationship the, uh, somebody in a lawsuit could claim that you're general partners and suddenly you're general partners and you have what's called joint and several liability where your, your co-author or your editor or whoever else they're claiming is your partner gets into a car accident and that you were not a part of and they go after your book and they get ownership of your book because your general partner was in an accident. Yes, it can happen. <laughs> so my business law professor made us swear never to form a general partnership on purpose and to be careful not to form them by mistake. And this is another advantage to having an LLC is that I would say you're less likely to accidentally form a general partnership if you have an LLC. So my recommendation is if you're planning to write more than one book, form an LLC. It only costs $79, $99 on LegalZoom.com, and it's worth doing. Shadona, what are your thoughts? I absolutely 100% agree. I'm one of those people that became an accidental author. I did it all wrong. I can tell you every single thing not to do, and it would take all day, so I won't. But, but the number one thing, if I could go back and change three things, it would be that, A, I did the LLC first, B, I had a separate Amazon account, and C, I went to professionals who know indie, which wasn't as easy back then. I get, you know, we're talking 2009 here, but professionals who know indie author stuff. So like formatting and editing and all the things that I made all the mistakes on, I wouldn't. So those would be the three, but LLC and separating those Amazon accounts would be the top two. So there you go. Learn from Shatona's pain and don't suffer it yourself. <laughs> the final decision you need to make as an indie author is do you register your copyright? Now, again, I'm not a lawyer, but here's my understanding of how copyright law works. By law, if you create it, you own the copyright. If you jot down a poem on the back of a napkin, you own the copyright to that poem. And that is legally enforceable. And there's a lot of fun court cases uh, that help establish this, including the famous Willie Nelson court case where he mailed himself in the uh, mail a, the uh, lyrics of one of his songs. Now, for $40 to $100, you can register a copyright with the United States Copyright Office. And in exchange, you get a piece of government paper that says you own the copyright on that thing you registered. Now, for a long time, I didn't recommend that authors register their copyrights because I didn't feel it gave them any protection that they didn't already have and that it was a waste of money to get that piece of paper from the government. Because if you're in court 
you've already lost. <laughs> There's like having a piece of paper and waving it is you're still the fact that you're in court. That's ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars or more just in legal fees. It's 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 in having the piece of paper doesn't necessarily keep you out of United States court. So for a long time, I was like, don't bother registering the copyright. You already own the copyright for all intents and purposes. There's no reason to register it. But there is now a higher law than United States law, and that is Amazon law. <laughs> Amazon Big tech companies are now so powerful that governments pay them taxes rather than the other way around. When Amazon wants to open up a new headquarters somewhere, it demands that the local government pay it, quote, incentives, unquote, which is another word for that government paying taxes to Amazon. Amazon wanted New York to pay it over a billion dollars of incentives to build a headquarters in that state. When a big tech company wants to cancel someone, they can, even if that person is a sitting U.S. president. That's how powerful they are. And indie authors, while they very rarely end up in a U.S. court, they are in Amazon court all the time. (laughs) They're dealing with Amazon customer success representatives, and that is not a enjoyable experience. There's no ability to face your accuser. There's just a murky haze of emails from people from other countries who don't necessarily understand your problem and may or may not have the authority to resolve your issues. And one bad thing that can happen to you is somebody else claims to own the copyright to your book and Amazon may take your book away. They may take the money coming in from your book away, and one real easy way to solve it is to wave that piece of government paper. You take a photo of it, you send it to the Amazon customer success representative, and suddenly the problem goes away. And so because of this new Amazon law, and because of how much more important Amazon law is to you as an author, I think it's worth it to spend the 40 or $100 or however much it costs to get that piece of paper that says that you own the copyright, just especially if you write fiction, just to be safe. Actually, totally 100% agree with this. I didn't do, because I got that piece of paper for my traditionally published book, and I was like, well, that's nice. And I filed it, I didn't care. But then you you get into these multi-author sets sometime, which is a really great way to grow an audience. I'm just throwing that out there. So you in, you're in it, but then it disbands, and now you've got to do your personal book. It is a nightmare, a nightmare to get Amazon to let you upload that Kindle book because it was under somebody else's name before and now it's under yours. And it's if I just had that piece of paper, it would take no time at all to just snap it and get, yeah, this is mine. So my quarter three goal is to get all the titles that don't have copyrights, which is most of mine, not all of them, but most of them, done because of this very thing. It will save me so much hassle. It's worth the 40 bucks a book. Now, 40 bucks a book, not a lot of money when you have one book, but when you have 80 bucks, it's actually some money. So start paying it now as you're writing your books. Our sponsor today is the 2021 Book Launch Blueprint. We do this course once a year. This is your chance to learn how to launch a book. And Shatona, I didn't uh, ask if this is okay, but would you like to tell uh, everyone about your experience with the Book Launch Blueprint? Absolutely. I'm actually thankful that you're going to let me do this because I didn't get to send in a video when when you asked for it. But seriously, guys, I spent $1,100, it may have been more, but at least $1,100 on a launch program. And it was money well spent, don't get me wrong. But I was still floundering. 
And so when they came out with the <laughs> book launch blueprint, I looked at my husband and I'm like, I'm going to spend a few hundred more dollars on this because I know Thomas, I know Jim, and I know they're going to do a good job. And maybe I will be able to follow this in a way that the other just wasn't intuitive. It's the same information, mostly, but the way you guys laid it out made it so crazy doable. And I'm watching the the people launching their books in the groups since then. These guys are doing some amazing stuff. And they're doing it because you and Jim and and I don't know, is it, is it Mary DeMuth or is it Susan? I can't it's remember. Mary DeMuth. Which, huh? Mary DeMuth. You guys, you really nailed how to make it so accessible and so easy that it doesn't feel daunting. That other program that I spent all that money on is daunting. I just, I get in there and I look at it and I just, and they broke it down into little bitty things. It should be easy, but it's not. I don't know what you did differently, but you made it so that you just go in and it's like, do the next thing. And it's fun. You made launching a book, which I don't consider to be fun. You made it fun. So thank you. Well, thank you, Shatona. And if you're interested in joining us with the 2021 Book Launch Blueprint, registration ends April 8th. And if you're a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, you can save $100 off the cost of the course. And there's a link on patreon.com to activate that discount. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Amanda Wen, author of Roots of Wood and Stone. Garrett Anderson just wanted to clean out his grandmother's historic farmhouse before selling it, uh, but his carefully ordered plans runs up against two formidable obstacles. Sloan, who's fallen in love with the house and his own heart, which is irresistibly drawn to Sloan. So Amanda Wynn, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for helping keep the show on the air. And thank you to all of you who are listening. You have been listening to Shatona Havig and Thomas Umstead Jr., on the Novel Marketing Podcast. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Latelier. And to find the blog version of this episode, including links to anything we talked about, you can find that at authormedia.com slash 277 for episode 277. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.